everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during the pandemic with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Senator Heidi Heitkamp to SALT Talks. Uh, Senator Heitkamp is the first woman ever elected to a, be a U.S. Senator from the state of North Dakota. And I believe during her time in office, she was the only Democrat elected to a statewide office in North Dakota. Uh, she grew up in a large family in the small town of Mantador, North Dakota. Alongside her six brothers and sisters, she learned the value of hard work and responsibility, leading her to choose a life of public service. She worked as an attorney for the Environmental Protection, Protection Agency uh, before serving two terms as North Dakota State Tax Commissioner and two terms as North Dakota Attorney General as a member of the North Dakota Democratic Nonpartisan League Party. As Attorney General, she was a leader in the national suit against the nation's four largest tobacco companies, culminating in the landmark tobacco master settlement agreement, which required the companies to pay restitution to the states and transform their marketing practices. Senator Heitkamp saw firsthand the slow erosion of rural support for Democrats in rural states, which led to a landslide victory for President Donald Trump in the 2016 election. After leaving Congress, she founded the One Country Project to reopen the rural dialogue between voters and Democrats and help remind Democrats that rural voter, voters have traditionally been part of that Democratic coalition. Uh, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Senator Heitkamp during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and man managing partner of Skybridge, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And I know uh, Anthony and Senator Heitkamp met uh, I believe, on the set of The Bill Maher Show, where they appeared together recently. So looking forward to a great conversation. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. All right. I mean, first of all, John, the biographical information is fantastic. But then you get to the landslide victory for President Trump. I mean, what are you talking about? There wasn't a landslide. He lost the popular vote. What are you Among talking about? rural voters, I believe, was the insinuation that in 2016, oh, 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 he okay. took what was... We're doing a little bit of fact-checking early on I know here. You're, Senator, I know you're okay? sensitive about things related gotta, to gotta wa I got to watch with this guy, okay, because he's good-looking and he's blonde, and so we got to push him back a little bit, Senator. So, so, Senator, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your life of public service. And, but I'm more interested is how did you work your way to Washington. What was your path to becoming a senator? You know, it's interesting because I never wanted to go to Washington. Um, you know, I always thought that the best government is the local government. I served um, a term and a half actually um, as tax commissioner. I was appointed right after Kent Conrad was elected to the Senate, which was always um, where Kent was headed. But for me, number one, I don't, I'm not a big city girl. I love living in North Dakota. So um, where you live makes uh, a whole lot of difference in your life. And, you know, um, 
I was able to do some things when I was tax commissioner that were fairly significant and, and uh, had headed up a couple of national groups. In fact, uh, you might find this interesting. Uh, the original Quill decision, which was a state and local um, tax decision, um, I litigated the Quill decision. We got half a loaf. And it was interesting as life does, as life hands you some opportunities, we were able to help get um, the Supreme Court to reverse the Quill decision when I was in the Senate. And I was a leader on that issue as well. When I moved over to the Attorney General's office, North Dakota's Attorney General's office is incredibly complex from running the largest law enforcement agency called the Bureau of Criminal Investigation to the Fire Marshal's office to running the state lottery. Um, and, but, but I also, um, in that role, served as uh, on the board of directors of our state-owned bank. And so um, I really enjoyed state government, ran in 2000 for governor and lost, ironically, to um, my seatmate, John Hoven, who I had hired to run the bank in North Dakota. All politics is very personal in North Dakota. Um, and never thought I would go to Washington, DC. I thought if I would re-enter, it would be um, uh, another run for governor. But um, looking at what was happening in Washington, the failure of people to come together to actually form coalitions to get things done, I just said, look, you know, somebody's got to try and change that culture. And I ran in what no one thought was a doable race and ended up squeaking out a victory in uh, 2012 um, and was able to go really as a centrist, uh, really go as somebody whose main goal was to bring people together to solve problems. And, you know, I had six great years, wasn't able to repeat um, uh, that, that effort. Um, in the time, it, this is something politically, and not to jump ahead, Anthony, but when I first started in politics, I was 28 years old. I ran my first statewide race. Um, and my base were elderly and working class people and small family farmers. Those are the people who always routinely voted for the Dem NPL in North Dakota. That completely changed. By the time I was done, those people were re the Republican base and the more professional folks were the Democratic base. And you see that all across the board in, in the United States. And so, um, you know, I, I, think, I think when we look at um, the opportunity that we have to have an impact, um, you know, if you go with a clear vision of what you want to get done, and with an idea that you don't have, you aren't the only person with a good idea. You aren't the only person who really cares about this country and you go with respect, you can get a lot done. And I think I was able to accomplish a lot in six years. What I wasn't able to accomplish is reelection. But you're in a red state, is that, yeah. that fair to stay? And so how did you connect with all of these traditional Republican voters? And then what would be the playbook recommendation for what I would say is a blue collar base that voted for President Trump that was more traditional to the likes of a Franklin Roosevelt, a John Kennedy, a Lyndon Johnson, but have now are voting away from Democrats. So it's a two part question. How did you relate to Republicans and how can you get that base open to the idea of returning to the Democrat Party? It is going to, I would tell you that probably since uh, 2006, 
um, you really saw the change happening. And that's when people like Tom Daschle and, and uh, uh, even Tom Harkin, I don't know that Tom Harkin could get reelected in Iowa today. And those kind of traditional, more populist Democrats who represented the center part of our state or of our country um, uh, saw this huge realignment um, and, and what I will say is, we used to say, uh, use the um, Tip O'Neill line, all politics is local. That's not true anymore. All politics are uh, today are national. And the party identification is awfully hard to crack. When Kent and Byron, Kent Conrad and Byron Dorgan, two Democratic senators ahead of me, when they won, about 20% of Republicans were willing to vote for a Democrat. Now, if you look at polling, it's about only four. And so what happened to those 16%? What, what happened to the possibility that they would, in fact, vote? Well, I mean, in my case, I outperformed Hillary Clinton um, by uh, 22 points. So I did better. I did get um, uh, Trump voters to vote for me. Um, the only problem is that uh, North Dakota, uh, Trump won North Dakota by 36 points. So it was a pretty big headwind. And, and I think the, the major piece of advice that I give people is show up, but don't show up empty handed. And one of the reasons why I was successful, you heard in the bio, I grew up in a town of, of 90 people. My family was one-tenth the population. We knew, we knew that we had to work with our neighbors in order to get along and in order to get things happening. And I think it's that kind of cooperative, I don't know all the answers. Maybe you've got an answer that I haven't heard before. Let's talk about it. I think showing up, listening, and then doing something about it will help us slowly erode this partisanship that we see in rural America. Okay, so I'm going to make a stipulation, uh, Senator, you could agree with me or disagree with me, but if I'm right, then I'm going to ask you to think about what we can do to improve the situation. Uh, it feels like, from my vantage point, and maybe I'm wrong, that there's anger in the system, there's some populism, there's some nationalistic rage. Uh, I think it's born from economics more than anything else, meaning that people feel economically desperate, and so a result of which they're in a little bit of a rebel position or a revolt position. Mr. Trump, President Trump capitalized on that. He became the avatar of their anger. Uh, I'm wondering if you think I'm right about that or, or wrong. And if I am right about it, what can we do to put down that anger and make those people feel more plugged into the system again? Yeah, I, 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 you and I have had this conversation. I don't think it's driven as much by economics as it is about identity. You know, who am I as a person and are you talking to me? Claire McCaskill tells a great story. And it's about a guy who was in a gas station and he looked at Claire when she was running again. And I'm paraphrasing. And he said, you know, uh, Senator McCaskill, I voted for you, voted for you. Um, uh, uh, and I voted for you when you were running for statewide office. He said, but I don't know I'm going to do it again. He said, because I know that your party's for, for African-Americans and your party's for the homosexuals and your party's for this. I don't know that your party's for me. And I think, I think there is this kind of, uh, uh, kind of sense of, you know, you don't, you, you judge us 
in a way that's not fair. We're not racist. We're not, we're just trying to make a living. And simply because we may say something that's politically incorrect and you jump all over it, that just makes me feel disrespected because that's not what I intended. And so it's a complication that involves kind of their identity and whether they identify. And I think that's the remarkable thing about Donald Trump is you take a, a multimillionaire, and we can argue about that, right, Anthony? At least you take somebody who professes to be a millionaire, and um, you, you from New York um, City, and somehow he was able to identify, get people to identify with him and have people believe he was on their side. And so what, what was that dynamic? And there's a really interesting article in the last couple of days in political uh, magazine about the um, grievance, you know, that, that, the, the sense that I'm not respected, I, I have a gripe. And I'm not saying that it's not, Anthony, that it's not driven by some economics, but if we simply look at economics, I think we miss a bigger picture, which is about you know, reflection of your values, reflection of who you are as a person, and whether that's respected. So how do we get these different identity groups to think of themselves then, Senator, as Americans? Americans for, as, as opposed to an America first policy, how about all of us as Americans first, whether we're from North Dakota or from New York City, or you pick the spot, and whatever our sexual preferences are or the color of our skin, uh, we identify as Americans. How do we do that? Why we do it by electing a president who reflects those values and brings people together. And that was what was so dangerous, in my opinion, about Donald Trump is as he pursued, uh, you know, power through grievance, he he could only do that by division. And and so I think that the first thing we have to do is lead by example. I've been talking to a lot of groups about, you know. Uh, you know, one, one, one idea that I had is, wouldn't it be fun to see Ben Sass and Elizabeth Warren do a joint town hall in Nebraska and Massachusetts? You know, to, to actually see people as people, to see Elizabeth as a person, to right, see yeah. AOC as a person, but also to have people in Massachusetts see Ben Sass and maybe Tom Cotton, although I doubt you'd get Tom to do it, to, as, as people with ideas. And, 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 and I think it's going to take a big national dialogue, but it's gonna take um, people doing this outside of government. Um, and I think that's where uh, uh, your world uh, comes in. So let's talk about venture capital. Let's talk about where venture capital goes. The vast, vast majority of it goes to three states. You know, how about bringing venture capital to North Dakota and listening to entrepreneurship and people getting to know you or getting to know somebody from, uh, you know, allegedly from liberal New York, talk about how they want to help invest and grow the country. And so I think we, we can do it from an economic standpoint, but we've got to start seeing each other as people. Not as, as, oh, here you are, a redhead from Manador, North, small town, North Dakota. That I'm, I'm maybe more complicated than that, right? And you're more complicated than the guy from Long Island, which is where I think you're from. Um, oh, and, I'm definitely from Long Island. <laughs> Long Island. Yeah. Uh, I, you can try my accent, Anthony. Anthony. <laughs> you, can, you can try. I would have gone a lot. Hey, let me tell you something, Senator. I would have gone a lot farther in life if I had that <laughs> accent, okay? <laughs> But I think I think it's about seeing each other 
um, as Americans. I, I've been teaching, I did a, a stint at Harvard with Gary Cohen, and then I did a, um, a seminar for a year at Brown. And my first, my first uh, uh, introduction to my, sem sem uh, my seminar was, what is it to be an American? And it was fascinating what these kids would come up with. And, and so I think, I think it is, if we're gonna do what we need to do, you're asking exactly the right question. Because we've always, if you think about World War II, we were defined as the greatest generation. It was the external threats, always the external threats that we were able to coalesce behind and put aside our differences. I always say my, my dad's best friend in the, in the army when during World War II was uh, an Italian American from New York. I mean, he would never have had that experience. And, and we don't have those kinds of experiences that unite the country to common cause. And the threats now tend to be more internal. And it's a whole different challenge that we haven't had since the Civil War. You know, it's fascinating you say that because uh, in the Woodward and Bernstein book, the second book, Final Days, uh, they interviewed some of the senators. Turned out that one of the senators they were interviewing was Bob Dole, uh, talking about the resignation of Richard Nixon and, you know, the very famous scenes of Howard Baker and other senatorial leadership Republicans going to President Nixon and saying, hey, it's over, you're going to have to resign or we're going to pull the, the plug on you with an impeachment. Uh, what Dole said in the interview, Senator Dole, is that uh, it was impossible for him to see his friends die in Italy while he was wounded in Italy, fighting for the freedom associated with the document, the U.S., Constitution. And even though he was a strident partisan, he was an American first and the violations of the Constitution required uh, uh, for him in honor of his dead veterans that he served with to say that to Mr. Nixon. And, and we don't have that right now. Uh, you know, we have people that have served in the American military that maybe have physical courage, but there are Republican vet veterans in that Senate that decided that they were going to just strict, strictly stick with partisan lines. So, so my question to you, and this is sort of goes back to our pre-Bill Maher walking on stage discussion, which is, and I'd like to- About how young you look and how I look so old? Is that the discussion? Well, that's all. Listen, listen, I've cornered the market on North American Botox. So if you're nice to me, <laughs> when you come to my house, we can go into my garage, okay, and I can show you where all, all my stash is. But, but uh, when we were walking out on stage prior to, I said to you, you know, we've got some issues here in the Republican Party. We have Trumpism. And you could have smarter or different and perhaps even more malevolent people pick up the baton of Trumpism. Uh, how would you react to that? Do you think that that's something that could happen? Do you think Trumpism is gone? Do you think Trumpism is with us and with us permanently? What, what are your thoughts there? I, I mean, I absolutely do not think that this is simply a, a, a movement or an attitude that's going to evaporate if the leader leaves. And, you, and, and I told you, I think, I think Trump is a master at communication. And so he knew that there was this, this ability to motivate people who hadn't voted before or to motivate people who felt like they had been left behind or didn't see their, their uh, 
image in government anymore. And so he, I always said, you know, the fo- that the, the most interesting thing about the rallies is they're lo- the largest focus group ever done in American politics. He would go out and most of his lines fell kind of like a thud. But how did he get to build the wall? People responded to it. Lock her up. People responded to it. And so he just built on this kind of um, kind of um, sense of disaffectiveness, um, being disaffected from government, just built on that. Now you have the possibility and, and, and wasn't very good at kind of pivoting or at least not irritating the other side to the point where um, he could win re-election. And so now you've got the ability to take that grievance that he has ignited. And if it's not, if it's not brought down, if the temperature in this country is not brought down in terms of partisanship, it, it's right for someone like, and I, I'll just name names, someone like Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, um, who probably um, uh, don't have the communication skills, but they certainly are very, very bright individuals to kind of step into that void. And it's interesting because as we're talking about this, Josh Hawley has uh, signed on with Bernie Sanders on a populist item, which is the, the direct stimulus payment. So, so clearly trying to differ, you know, not, not run to that fiscal conservatism that you'll see Ted Cruz grab or, or perhaps uh, Mike Lee, and, but going to kind of fight for that Trump base, as Trump said, we need a big stimulus plan. We need, we need money being sent out. You know, these are people who had the religion of debt and deficit before Trump ever came along, and that's gone by the wayside. And I think if you want to follow the thread of who's trying to be the next Donald Trump, um, look to, to their populist rhetoric. So, you know, so it's interesting, and I'll share this with you, and you know this intuitively, but I'll confirm it. Uh, on many campaign rides on the Donald Trump candidate plane, uh, the then candidate Trump made an observation that his base is actually social conservatives and fiscal liberals. liberals. Exactly right. And so the opposite of, say, a Wall Streeter who probably considers themselves fiscal conservatives but social liberals. And, and so it's interesting that Senator Hawley is taking that position. Uh, I just want to ask a quick follow-up question, and then shortly we have to turn it over to this millennial that's sitting there with those big white teeth waiting to steal the show from me, Senator. He's waiting to steal the show. Don't let him do it. Don't yeah, let I'm, him I'm, do gonna, it. I'm gonna karate chop him in the Adam's apple when we're in the office again. Don't worry. The show's not the only thing we're gonna steal from you baby boomers. You know, oh you guys have god. driven the country into, into madness. Oh, oh my god. Look, look, look at this, Heidi. He's, he's, he's going one on two. Can you? Well, I have to tell you, the line that I use all the time is I say, my generation, AKA us, the baby boomers, will be the first generation in American history that borrowed uh, or that, that inherited from our parents and borrowed from our kids. So yeah. I don't agree with you. Yeah, I think it's a shortcoming. There's no question the political establishment uh, mishandled a, a very golden opportunity, but we got to make it right. And so I want to go to that topic with you about universal base income and uh, livable income, livable wages. What are your thoughts there? What are the tools that we can put in place to sort of make sure that most Americans, and let's say all Americans, frankly, have decent living standards in the United States? Well, let me, let, let me tell you this by story, and you'll get an idea of my attitude. 
Um, I was, um, when I was a senator, a guy came in who had just bought a bunch of uh, franchise restaurants in North Dakota. And we had, at the time, a huge problem with workforce. And I thought he wants to come in and talk about what we can do to recruit more workers, probably having a hard time hiring. And so I asked him, I said, so what's your biggest problem? And this guy says, well, it's the government. Okay. I said, what, what about the government? Is it food standards? You know, kept trying to, and he just kept saying the government. And finally he turned to me and he said, you know what? Don't you agree with me? And I said, well, let me ask you this. What do you, what do you pay your workers? He said, $10 an hour. I said, do you know what that is a year? And I happen to know what it is, a little over $20,000. And I said, do you think they can live on that if they work 40 hours a week in your restaurant? And he said, well, that's not the kind of job it is. And I said, but there are people working 40 hours who, who are putting in a full week's worth of work. And I said, and they qualify for food stamps and they qualify for for um, uh, housing benefits and they qualify for health care. So isn't it true that the government's subsidizing you? And, and we, we always look at what that person who is working their ass off, you know, in these kinds of jobs and, and working two or three jobs, probably working 60 hours a week, begging grandma to take care of the kids so that the kids actually, you know, have some stability in their lives. And then we turn it on, on the struggling worker and say, you need to work harder, you need to get retrained, or you need to fix this. And I'm like, maybe people ought to worry about how we're paying people in this country. So that would be the first thing is that we can't have wages that put people in poverty. We've got to figure that out. And, and I have a, a very prominent good friend who told me, look, you're never going to get that to happen. So you need to have the earned income tax credit. I asked, Anthony, uh, I asked Yang, Andrew Yang, when, when I had a chance during the, during the primaries, I asked him, I said, why are you doing this universal um, uh, income thing when uh, the earned income tax credit is how we've actually managed this? And he just said, you know, it, it, it's a different way to talk about the issue because the earned income tax credit, which has been refundable and been around a long time, um, is not something people really understand very well. So, I mean, I think that we need to make a commitment to equalizing economic opportunity in this country. And it can't always fall back on the worker. We need CNAs in nursing homes, some of whom are paid $7 an hour. We need construction workers who do not need a PhD to, to um, shingle a roof, but they ought to be making a living and they ought to have health care in their job. And so I think, I think that the first thing I would say when you said, what about this? I would say, let's have a conversation with business America and with employers and talk about how we can help them pay higher wages so that people can earn their way and it's not seen as a welfare program. Because when you work 40 hours a week, you shouldn't be on welfare of any kind. All right, listen, I think it's very well said. I've got one last question and then we're gonna turn it over to our audience. And we've got a tremendous amount of audience participation. Uh, you voted somewhere between 50 and 65% alongside of President Trump. And some actually considered you further to the right than say, a Susan Collins, a Senator Susan Collins from Maine, uh, based on your voting record, of course. How difficult is it to break from your caucus and vote based on the interests of your constituents? And is that something we'll see more of from the future Senates or less of? 
Um, you know, I, I went there with the idea that, that I was going to vote my conscience. And, and, you know, with the exception of a couple votes, I feel like I did exactly what I meant to do. And, and, and um, so you can't always vote your constituency. And people from North Dakota would say, well, what about, uh, what about Kavanaugh? And I, what I would tell people on those kinds of appointments, I said, yeah, you may have an opinion today, but I'm making this decision for 30 years. And so I have to use my judgment. And so in most of the cases, even though, um, and a lot of that voting with the president, those are all about nominations, you know, on, on tough votes. Let's take a look at Kavanaugh and the tax vote. I didn't vote for that tax bill and I can defend it. I, my favorite quote on the tax bill was uh, Michael Bennett, who said, not only am I not voting for it, I wish I could vote against it twice. You know, it, it, I, I thought that the tax bill was ill-conceived. I thought we could have uh, taken those dollars and redistributed them in a different way. Um, I thought that it was heavy-handed by the president. I think his people, people like Gary, would have come to some kind of compromise that would have uh, created a stability in the tax code. So what I would say is I voted my conscience and uh, people may say, well, yeah, and you got voted out by the people of North Dakota. And I said, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I always, I always give the, um, the Robert Kennedy quote when he was talking to some graduates, he said, but remember this, he's talking about how privileged we are to be Americans and educated Americans with, with, you know, with all the benefits of this constitution and the freedom that we have. And he said, but remember this, you can use all of your benefit and all of your opportunity strictly for personal gain. He said, that's, that's what you can do in America. He said, but remember this, history will judge you and more importantly, you will judge yourself as time goes on. And I think that that idea of being a citizen, of, of caring about something bigger than yourself, um, uh, you can say what you want about the Trump movement. I think they think they do care about something bigger than themselves. Um, but uh, you know, I think, I think we've got to get to that part of um, unifying uh, uh, America around the ideals that we have and that have um, uh, made this country the greatest country in the earth since the signing of the American Constitution. So I'm a, I'm a big, big optimist, but I also think it doesn't happen without individual citizen commitment. All right. Well, hi, Senator. It, it is always a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for doing this with us. I got to turn it over to John now. Because otherwise, his agent's going to start complaining to me, and it is the end of the year. I have to re-sign him for next year. So go <laughs> ahead, Dorsey. It's in my contract. I get at least 10 minutes at the end of the interview, or, or I'm out. So thank you, Anthony. Um, Senator, you talked about um, how you, know, you don't think that it was completely an economic decision uh, that voters made and continue to make when they vote for President Trump. One example is the effect that Trump's trade policies had on farmers and other rural voters in terms of you know, direct economic impact. You maintained or you tried to maintain a working relationship with Trump, in my view, because you thought you could have an impact on him when it comes to trade policy, and you urged him to take a softer view on trade. What was the ultimate impact of his trade policies on your constituents and other farmers and rural voters? And why do you think that they chose to overlook some of that uh, potentially to continue to support the president? 
Well, a couple things. First off, I don't think we will know the impact of this kind of bilateral, take them all on at the same time, alienate our, our trading partners, you know, our allies who are both military allies and trading allies. Um, we won't know what the impact is. I'm fairly certain it would be very dire had this president been reelected. Um, and I, I, I maintain a different position than a lot of people in my political party. I don't think that we will be successful unless we embrace globalization. Doesn't mean that we get taken for a ride or that we're suckers. It just means we need to understand that the growing market that's out there, especially in Indochina, is one that we need to have access to. And we can't walk away from it. And the only way we get access is by guaranteeing that there is enough trading partners to push back against the excesses and the wrong doing of, of China. And I will put India, especially as it goes to agricultural products in that in that basket. Um, you know, I, I think, I, you know, there's a story, I don't know how true it is that when they were talking about trade policy, they were very concerned in the administration about what would happen with farmers to which Wilbur Ross said, we'll just buy them off. Um, billions of dollars. In fact, today, about 40% of net farm income this year will come from the federal government. Farmers know that's not sustainable. We walked away from direct payments in the last farm bill. Now we're right back in that soup. And so to me, the, the biggest casualty will be that we have allowed our competitors, whether it's Brazil and Argentina on soybeans and corn, whether it is looking at wheat from Australia, we have allowed our competitors to access these markets and making the markets that much more difficult to reestablish for American agriculture. And American agriculture is one of those few places in American trade that we actually run a trade surplus. So we've in many ways have killed the goose that laid the golden egg. And we've got to get back to, um, in my opinion, multilateral multilateral trade discussions where we are um, uh, pulling people together in a trading kind of relationship that helps us get the best deal for, uh, in my opinion, liberal democracies who want a free enterprise system. And if we don't do that, we are going to continue to fall further and further behind. Yeah, I think your views on trade are really strong. And I want to continue on that theme, especially as it relates to Anthony as well. So President Trump reportedly early in his administration considered uh, shuttering the U.S. Export-Import Bank. And <laughs> Anthony actually spent some time at the XM Bank prior to becoming uh, communications director briefly. And he was also, like yourself, a big advocate in the president's ear that we shouldn't just keep the XM Bank open. We should be much more aggressive in utilizing it because there's other countries and competitors of ours who use that type of uh, bank very successfully to grow domestic business. For people who don't I, understand he, what the XM Bank does, go ahead. I, he likes he likes bringing up my short stay in the White House. He just wants to remind all the viewers that I got fired from the White House. Well done, John. <laughs> I John, have to slip well it in done. somehow. This go, one was actually one of the nicer Go ahead, I Senator. Made. I just wanted to point that out to you how cruel he is. Okay, go ahead, Senator. So it's for funny. for people who don't know what the XM Bank does and why you think we should use it more aggressively, could you just explain to our viewers uh, everything related to your views on the XM Bank? 
it, it basically provides um, uh, financing in terms of exports to guarantee that people in this country will get paid and will basically be competitive. It, it, they do that with a lot of different mechanisms. But the one thing I want to talk about, because everybody says, oh, it's the bank of Boeing, right? Boeing is a big user of the XM Bank. It's a bank of Caterpillar and all of these large organizations. The first thing I tell people is Boeing doesn't manufacture all those parts. Yeah, the largest supplier of Boeing um, uh, parts for their uh, airplanes is in Texas. And the worst trouble I had was with Ted Cruz on the XM Bank. I was the leader, the Democratic leader, trying to get the XM Bank reauthorized. We actually shuttered it. Now, I don't blame Donald Trump for that. When the first time I met him, he, he asked me to come up and talk about a potential cabinet position before he was even sworn in. And you have your 10 minutes to pitch something. And I pitched, of course, American agriculture and, and uh, energy independence, but I pivoted pretty quickly to the XM Bank because I think that um, maintaining that infrastructure is absolutely critical. And it's interesting because Steve Bannon's on one side saying, you're right, you're right. And uh, Ranks Previous is on the other side saying, Paul Ryan won't like that. And, you know, so you could see that the battle was mainly um, uh, with the with the, within the Republican Party. There were some people like, like Bernie Sanders is not a Fan. He sees it as corporate cronyism. I see it as American, essential to American jobs. We saw during the time that the bank was shuttered, we saw GE lose jobs. We saw major companies shut down because they did not have access to an export um, import uh, uh, financing agency in this country. It's unilateral disarmament. The bank needs to be back up and we need to vigorously pursue economic opportunity. And if I can add one more thing, we have small manufacturers in North Dakota who would never have found an international market that they could take the risk in if it weren't for the XM Bank. Now, either the, the, the currency risk or the risk that they weren't going to get paid for what they exported. And so this isn't just the bank of Boeing. This, is, this, this has the potential of giving um, access to markets for small American businesses that would never have access to market without an export import agency. North Dakota in particular, it has another unique uh, aspect to it in the state investment board. It's a unique institution among American states. We had Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey on a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, in New Jersey, we would like to copy uh, this basically state investment bank that exists in North Dakota here in New Jersey, but it's challenging to get it up and running. Um, you know, it's something that North Dakota uses to direct strategic investments and to help incubate businesses in the state. Do you think other uh, states should copy this model and how do you guys use it in North Dakota? Well, it started where, where you know, the state treasurers have tremendous responsibility in other states, not so much in North Dakota because all of the deposits of the state of North Dakota actually go to the Bank of North Dakota, which is our state uh, development bank. I like to call it development rather than investment, our state development right. bank. That is by constitution charged with um, helping farmers, helping small business people, helping uh, 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 um, uh, our, our organizations. And it's interesting how how that has in fact morphed over time. Just to give people an idea, they may say, well, don't you, don't they, don't the banks hate you? Um, no, because let's take a small community bank 
that has a loan limit. They're up against their loan limit, but yet this is a good credit for them. They might have to go to a competitor like Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank in order to share that credit thinking I'm going to lose that customer um, eventually because of my partnership. They can go to the State Development Bank, the Bank of North Dakota, and partner. The Bank of North Dakota does not make direct loans unless it's authorized. And so that gives the regular financial institutions, especially the smaller community banks, the kind of protection that they think is needed. So we do things like when I was on the board of directors for the bank, we had a PACE program, which was Look, you can charge at the time, I think the interest rate is probably 5%, but the Bank of North Dakota will write that down and subsidize it to keep that business in your community or to keep that business in, in North Dakota. And so it's been an incredible model. Um, I, I think it was born out of the uh, populist movement in the early 1900s. Um, uh, we have a Norwegian heritage, which tends to be ironically more socialist. Um, so we also own a mill and elevator. Um, we also own the state state mill that um, uh, has been very successful in recent years after we got back on good footing. And, and so um, these are institutions that are well regarded and well accepted and I think give you the investment and the development um, tool that you need like the Export-Import Bank um, in a state that, that um, where you can leverage these deposits of state revenue along with um, uh, good banking practices to basically reinvest in your state. So to build on something you said earlier about the idea of restoring dignity to different types of job in, jobs in America, there's obviously a very uh, bifurcated experience now that Americans are feeling. People in these coastal cities that have a wealth of venture capital investment and you know, financial jobs are, are you know, doing pretty well overall. Financial markets are doing well. The investor class is doing well. But as you said, people view Donald Trump almost like an avatar for their anger at how well everyone else is doing and how happy everybody else is with you know, the dignity that their job brings. How do we restore that dignity? I, I saw the, uh, the review of your appearance at Jeff Sonnenfeld's Yale CEO Summit about how you talked about the need to restore dignity into working class jobs. How do we do that at a practical level? I mean, I, I think that you, I, okay, so this will get me in trouble. So, um, you know, as we are talking about what we're going to do for student loans, right? So it's like, okay, so I am going to pay taxes on my $80,000 a year job where I have to work overtime to earn that. I'm going to pay those taxes so, and, and I've been saving and maybe I put my kids through college so I can pay for somebody else's college education. Um, and so those are the, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything about the policy. What I'm saying is sit in that chair, sit in that chair and look at that idea from that perspective. And it's like, okay, well, why, because you went and got a music education degree, I'm gonna pay for that. When I worked my way up through as a journey apprentice, plumber and now I'm going to pay for your education right. I, you know and, and it and it and it doesn't sit well and I think there are ways that we can talk about getting equity and getting student debt forgiveness that don't you know don't make people feel like they're being judged or they're being asked to subsidize something that they never uh, uh, took advantage of and and so I think I think that um, Anthony made a similar point on Twitter who did decision to forgive student debt and it would 
you know, it would only accrue benefit to a certain class of Americans. John, um, you, John, you blotched out there on the internet for a second. No, he was saying that I made a point about student loan forgiveness. And go ahead, John, I want to interrupt. Yeah, basically that it, it only accrues to a certain segment of the population and, and people who might not have pursued higher education did it uh, for maybe practical reasons. And so, you know, we agree with you so, wholeheartedly. And, and so are, let me give you, let me give you ahead. an alternative. Here's the real rub. There are people who are pay, who have repaid their student loans over and over again, but because our interest rates are way too high for student debt, they can't ever get it paid off. So instead of forgiving student debt, re, you know, uh, refinance at a lower interest rate, do it retroactive so people aren't being taken advantage on student debt. If in fact the Department of Education has given student debt to a fly-by-night for-profit college that took advantage of our veterans mainly, took advantage of minority populations, then look at how you're going to provide relief there when people didn't get a product and you actually put the good housekeeping seal of approval on it when you gave them the ability to do student loans. And let's take a look at um, forgiving for people who, in fact, um, are doing things that other people don't want to do. Um, and, and, you know, teachers and firefighters and people who are engaged in, there's so, there's so many ways to justify student debt forgiveness, but wiping it out across the board makes it look like we're picking winners and losers in this society. And, and people kind of intuitively think, who's going to pay for that? I mean, I, I guess I'm going to pay for it when I write out my check in, in April. And, and so I just think we need to be really... You know, it's like it's true for everything in life. If you want to figure out where you can bring cohesion to society and to our politics, sit for a while in someone else's chair. Sit for a while and see the world through their lens. See and 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 quit assuming you know what motivates them. And and to me, that that's a critical part of reuniting the country. And so let's talk about reuniting the country very quickly because uh, we're going overtime here and we're so grateful for your time, Senator. You wrote an op-ed recently with Cindy McCain that was published on CNN.com talking about the need to come together across bipartisan lines. Uh, President-elect now Joe Biden uh, has talked a lot about wanting to do this. He thinks that people will be surprised by uh, how much compromise there will be in this new Senate and this new administration. Are you optimistic about a return to some level of bipartisan deal-making? Are you cynical and you think polarization could get worse before it gets better? Um, if you try and do this from Washington, D.C., you will spin your tires and you'll be further in the ditch. And I've said this over and over again. If you want to reunite this country, get out into the country. Do not think that you, I mean, because if you all scurry into a room, and have these discussions behind closed doors, and then everybody's mad at everybody, and they come out and they have their talking points, and you know, you're, you don't care about poor people, well, you only care about rich people, blah, 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 back and forth, you'll get nothing done. Um, I, you, from your, my bio, you know that I'm a product of state government. I was a Democrat in a very Republican state even when I held state office, and I was able to get things done um, you know, sometimes they weren't always the most popular with my Republican colleagues, but we got stuff done. And I, I always tell this story. I say, you know, in every small town in America and probably big towns, I don't know those as well, um, there's a coffee table 
And it's usually filled up with people from the community, mainly old guys, right? And I said, there's people sitting around that table. They're Democrats and they're Republicans and, and our diversity here in North Dakota, they're Lutherans and Catholics, they're Green Bay fans and Vikings fans. And I said, and they'll argue the issues of the day, but that group of people will figure out how to get the Christmas lights up in the town square. They'll figure out how to put a roof on the church together. And it's, it's that local, we have to get it done attitude that we need to reignite. And if we don't reignite it at the local level, I have no hope that it's gonna happen at the national level. Well, hopefully uh, they hear your voice in this administration and we can fix some of these problems uh, before they spiral too far out of control. Senator Heitkamp, we're very grateful again for your time. Anthony, do you have a final word for the Senator before we let her go? Next time we're on Bill Moore, don't outshine me like that, Senator, okay? <laughs> I don't know that that happened. I, you know, you I were like a blinding, you were like a blinding son of wisdom and humor at a time where I needed you sedated. I just want you to know that. Right, Mer Merry Christmas. Oh, it was fun. It, it was, was a lot fun. of fun. I really yeah. enjoyed it, actually. And, uh, I, and thank you so yeah. much for doing this with us. Well, and, and, you know, the thing is, Anthony, if you from Long Island, you know, traditionally a Republican coming from the finance world, I come from rural America, you know, if you and I can sit down and have a conversation and try and understand, um, you know, there's hope in the world. And so thank you for inviting me. It was fun to do and uh, really, really enjoy getting to know you. Well, we, we appreciate you being on. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. And hopefully we'll see you in the new year once this pandemic uh, ebbs. And I, we know you're not a big city girl, but we're having a, a conference potentially in New York next year. And we'd love to see you there. We can show you some of the, uh, the big city lights. <laughs> she's, she's been there more than once, John. You make it like she's never been there. I mean, you're really whack today. No, um, it's all good. Thank you so much, John. And thank you, Anthony, for including me. Thanks, Senator.